Oh, I know what's happening. That was my sound guy. You're awesome. Thank you for double dutying today. Everybody give Brandon a hand. Thank you. All right. <laughs> I want you to imagine you're, for a moment, you're a first century Jewish person. And uh, your family has been Torah observant for generations. Uh, you, are, you eat kosher. You make pilgrimages down for all the festivals and feasts in Jerusalem. Uh, you are regular in sacrificing at the temple. Okay? You got the picture? And uh, you, you uh, the priesthood is the very center of your life. It's where when you came to dedicate your children, you went to the temple and a priest held them and blessed them. Whenever you uh, had a good harvest or blessing or something good came into your life, you came and you offered a thank offering at the temple, right? And a priest helped you with that. Whenever you sinned and your conscience was prickled and you realized you needed to be made right with God, you made your trip down to Jerusalem and you offered a sacrifice, a burnt offering for your own sin, and the priest did that for you. And so the the priesthood, the temple, the sacrificial system was at the very center of your life. Then, all of a sudden, you hear one day about this guy named Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus made these ridiculous claims that he was son of God in flesh. And that he had come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And everything was about to change. He, he did all these miracles that demonstrated that we needed to pay attention to him. Most of all, the one where he died and resurrected his own life three days later. He is the crucified and risen son. And all of a sudden you say, this, I have to pay attention to this. And then you meet a group of people. They call themselves the way. They're following the way of Jesus, and they go to temple for worship, but they start saying really weird things like, we don't actually need these priests anymore. We don't need these sacrifices anymore. We just come here and sing and leave. We give thank offerings, but we don't do sin offerings. And you go, this is nuts. These people are wacko, right? Think of what a hard sell it would be to have had 1,500 years of your family following the way of the law of Moses and the sacrificial system and to one day say, eh, we don't need that anymore, right? Tradition, tradition, right? Fiddler on the roof reference for those of you who aren't, who aren't, anyway. But like, it's a hard sell. It's a big deal. Enter the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is written into Hebrew people who are wrestling through what does all this mean, the coming of Messiah Jesus, and the reality of all that has happened in him. And of course, the book of Hebrews has got two big things, enthronement because Jesus is king, and atonement because Jesus is our great high priest. And so last week, we started into this conversation of how on earth can Jesus be the priest? And we realize that even though he's not descended from Levi, from all the way down from Aaron, Moses' brother in the beginning, all the way down from Levi, from Aaron, all the way down this tribe of Levi, which is where all the priests came from, 
Jesus is not a Levite. He's from Judah, which makes him eligible to be the king, but he's not a Levite, so he can't be the priest. We said, well, how do we solve this problem? And the writer to Hebrews says, ah, there is a non-Levitical priesthood, Melchizedek, and Jesus is of that order instead. And so we, we started this conversation that Jesus is really eligible to be a priest in the order of Melchizedek, but, na- but now we have the question of, okay, which one's better, the Levitical priesthood that's consistent with the law or the Melchizedekian priesthood that is just out there? We don't really know. And he's going to make the case that the Melchizedek priesthood, the priesthood of Jesus, far exceeds, is greater than, better than, in every way, the priesthood that came before through the Levites. Okay, So that's where we're going. So grab your Bibles, if you will. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 7, and today we have a tale of two priesthoods, all right? A little Charles Dickens reference. Uh, here we go, a tale of pre- two priesthoods. We're going to compare and contrast these two streams of priesthoods down uh, through the years here. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 11 to 28, pages uh, 1004 to 1005 in the Black Pew Bible. If you didn't bring a Bible, pull that out, and you can join us on those pages there. I'm going to read our passage together, and then we will dive in, okay? First of all, here we go. Uh, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 11. Now, if perfection has been, had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood... There is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, right, from Judah, not Levi, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirements concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment, the commandment regarding priests being of Levitical descent, For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it is not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one, Jesus, was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests being many in number, were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently. Because he continues forever. And consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. 
He has no need like those priests, those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Thanks be to the Lord for the reading of his word. Now, what's going on here is we are, we are taking a whole theme that starts in the very beginning of the Bible, runs all the way through it, and it's this theme of priesthood. And we're putting a bow on it and tying it all together in Jesus. So what we need to do is zoom out here and get a picture of priesthood across the canon to get an idea of what's going on here, to get our heads, heads around it. This is why Hebrews is so hard. It's bringing together so many things from across the Bible. So I want to ask three questions, and they're, they're really one question, but it keeps adding to itself this morning, okay? So the first one is, why the, why the priesthood? Okay, why do we even need this thing? Why the priesthood is now better, okay? And why the priesthood is now better for us, Okay, you see where we're going? So we're going we're gonna to kind of add on pieces, and we're going to answer these three questions in sequence. So first, why, is the, why the priesthood here? Why the priesthood? We're going to start at the very at beginning, because that's, uh, Julie Andrews told us that's a very good place to start. Boy, I'm on a roll here. Come on now. I'm going old school today. All right. Uh, so in the beginnings, God created the heavens and the earth, right? And... Uh, the crown jewel of his creation was the creation of humanity, right? Uh, create, created human beings. He created uh, Adam out of the dust of the ground, breathed the breath of life in him, and he became a living uh, being, made in the image, Imago Dei, the image of God. And God said to Adam, he said this in Genesis two sixteen to 17, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You shouldn't eat of that one, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. You will surely die. And of course, um, so here he is, Adam. Uh, God then, you know, creates Eve and brings Eve to Adam and all of this. And uh, of course, Adam and Eve have full reign of the garden. They, all these good things, except there's one restriction. And of course, we're humans and we understand this. They fixate on the restriction. And the serpent comes and tempts Eve and says, you know, did God really say, and all of this, and Eve takes a bite, right, and gives it to Adam, and he takes a bite as well. They're instantly, uh, 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 they're instantly flooded with shame and guilt, and they start hiding, running from God. And God comes into the garden, as he usually did, and he would wander, walk through the garden. He can't find Adam and Eve. Where are you? And they've hidden. Why? Because we were naked, and we were ashamed, and we ran away. And here's what's weird. They didn't die. In that day, you will surely die. But they didn't, did they? Something, Something died that day on the inside. But they didn't die. What they thought was going to happen didn't actually happen. But something died that day. Look at the end of chapter 3. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, this 
The man has become like us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Dot, dot, dot. Horrible thought. Imagine humanity living forever separated from God. This is not good. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man at the east of the Garden of Eden. He placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And so what died that day were some animals who died instead of Adam and Eve so that their hides would cover over the shame, the nakedness, the guilt of Adam and Eve. You have here the very first sacrifice. Do you see this? God is the priest, and he is sacrificing these animals to cover over the sin of Adam and Eve, to make atonement so that they may be covered over and live and not die. That's what's going on here. There's a substitute that dies in the place of Adam and Eve, so that from this day they will not die. They may live. There's there's hope, there's a future, there's promise. But so this is the very first priestly act. Do you see this? And so much of the Bible is now answering this question how do we get back to the garden? How do we get back to the presence where God walks slowly with us and we enjoy his presence in innocence and fellowship forever? This is the question. And the answer we get in Genesis chapter 3 initially, just a little thread that's going to get pulled out further, is that we, the way we get back to the garden, the way we get back into right relationship with God is the substitute of an atoning life offered by a sanctified intermediary. The sacrifice of an atoning life, these animals that die in their place, right, to make them right with God, or at least temporarily so they don't die, offered by a sanctified, holy, intermediary, priestly figure. In this case, God himself. Okay? Atonement means you can break it down. It's a little easy. To, it's a little cheater way to do it. But it means at one meant. It means to be made right, reconciled to God. To be atoned before God is to be forgiven and made right. So from this point on now, you're going to have the introduction of the priesthood with Moses and all of that. This is what the priests do. Exactly what God's doing here. The priests will stand in the gap between uh, the people of God and their sin and their brokenness as they're estranged from God, covered with sin and guilt. The priests will offer sacrifices, animals who are killed in the place for the sake of the sinners, right? Who, who have the sentence of death on their life, but this allows them to live and not die and keep going. In some sense, the, the holy of holies is like the garden. It is where the presence of God is. And actually, if you think about it, there you have the cherubim, the cherubim guarding the holiness of God, right? You have actually lots of Garden of Eden imagery on the tapestry and on the walls and the temple and very much. So in other words, the temple is about approaching and getting close to the garden, to the place where life is, the presence of God, but you can only barely get in there, right? And it is through sacrifice and through atonement, and this is the work of the priesthood. And it's a way to sort of get back to God. Are you with me so far? 
This is how the priesthood functions. The substitute of an atoning life offered by a sanctified intermediary. Now, why the priesthood is now better, okay? Now we're going to turn the corner. We're going to talk about why Jesus' priesthood is so much better than the one we had for so many years. For 1,500 years, God overlooked the people's sins because of all of these sacrifices. But they were never enough, friends. They were never enough. We know this intuitively. An animal cannot fully represent the life of a human being. We know that. You cannot substitute for imago Dei, image of God, with something like, like an animal. And so the temple and the priests, as good as they were, and they were good and gracious, friends. They were good and gracious. But they were not enough. Verse 1 says, if perfection was possible through the Levitical priesthood, why on earth then would God deem it necessary to bring another priest along after the order of Melchizedek? If If that satisfied God, if that was enough to cover us and atone us forever, we wouldn't need another priest, but we have another priest in Jesus. So that means this wasn't enough. Now, let's compare and contrast. Jesus' priesthood is better in so many ways. First way, it is better in terms of its qualifications. It's better in terms of its qualifications. The old priesthood was all about lineage, right? Descending from Levi. That's what made you a priest. That's what qualified you to serve. But Jesus' priesthood is based on the power of an indestructible life. The power of an indestructible life. This is in verse 16. He has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but on the po- by the power of an indestructible life. He says, look, those old priests of old, they were qualified because of a long list of dead people. But this one, This one is qualified on the basis of the fact that they tried to kill him and and he wouldn't stay dead. You cannot keep him down. He has the power of an indestructible life. He is the risen and exalted son to whom the father has sworn this oath and will not change his mind. In verse 17 and 21, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He's quoting again from Psalm 110, verse 4, which we looked at last week. Uh, We're not going to go into that all here, but the point is he's applying all of this to Jesus, saying this is the Father's declaration concerning his Son. Jesus' qualifications are better than the qualifications of the priesthood of of old. Can I get an amen? amen? Amen. Okay. Secondly, his sacrifice is better. Okay, the old priesthood had sacrifices that were three things, daily, temporary, and finite. Daily, temporary, finite. They were daily. They had to offer a sacrifice every day for themselves, right? Because they were sinners before God and needed cleansing in order that once clean, they might perform another sacrifice on behalf of the people. They had to do this every day. Why? Because every day we sin. And so every day we need cleansing. They were temporary sacrifices. 
They, had to, they, only, they were only good for 24 hours. 24 hours, you had to do it all over again. Right? It's like, here it comes again. Here it comes again. <gasps> here it comes again. Here it comes again. And they, they eventually, these priests died. And so they had to tap the next one to keep doing it because he had to keep this, it was a perpetual wheel. If you couldn't let it stop spinning or everything unraveled and it was finite, everyone knew these sacrifices were inadequate. You cannot cover the life of an image bearer with an animal's sacrifice. It was so obviously inadequate and yet God accepted it for some reason. But it was inadequate But Jesus' sacrifice, in contrast, is once for all. Once for all. Look at verse 27. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for their own sins and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Friends, Jesus, being fully human, could be a substitute for humanity, image bearers, couldn't he? For he bore the image of God. He still bears the image of God. And as a son of God, fully God, not just fully man, but fully God, he is infinite. His life is unending, and he has an infinity of resources to offer. The infinite God lays down his life to atone for the sins of the world. Once for all, all peoples, all times, it is finished. It is finished. And he holds this priesthood, verse 24, forever. No successor needed. He holds the priesthood for all time. Even to this day, it is his priesthood that covers you and me. Jesus' sacrifice is better, friends. Better in every way. It is a once-for-all sacrifice. Thirdly, his ministry is better. His ministry is better. The old priesthood was an imperfect one, wasn't it? The priests were imperfect. They were tainted by sin. They were weak in their humanity. And they too needed sacrifices to cover and cleanse their lives. Yes? And their ministry, listen, this is amazing. In order to be a priest, they had to make another sacrifice. Do you realize this? It wasn't just the sacrifice they made for the nation. They always had to make another one for themselves. There were always two sacrifices needed. Always. So it was, it, do, you see, do you see that the, the, the death toll was multiplying under the old priesthood? It was always multiplying. But Jesus' priesthood is different. Jesus is perfect and holy. There, he has no need to sacrifice his own, make his own sacrifice, right? Verse 26, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, look at these words, holy, innocent, unstained, separate from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. And Jesus' ministry as a priest doesn't require another sacrifice. Instead of the death toll multiplying, it shrinks and focuses down to one. One. 
It all, listen, it all stops with him. It all stops with him. One life, and it's over. Jesus doesn't offer the life of someone else. He offers himself in self-giving love. He's perfect in self-giving, friends. Greater love has no one than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Jesus' ministry is better. He's perfect in self-giving. And finally, his covenant is better. His covenant is better. The old priesthood, listen, at its best, the old priesthood had God at arm's length. Right? That only one person got to go into the Holy of Holies. Only one. And that was one day a year on the Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. That was the closest you could get. Everybody else had to stand in the outer court, do the sacrifice, and hope the guy didn't die. That was the whole deal. But Jesus, listen, in Jesus' priesthood, friends, we are entirely close forever. We have been given access into the holy of holies, into the very presence of our God. Verse 19, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And he's our priest forever who always lives to intercede on our behalf. Verse 22, Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. See, in the, in the, Hebrew, he's, the Hebrew writer is realizing something here. If there's a new priesthood, that means there's a new law. And if there's a new law... That means there's a new covenant. And if there's a new covenant, it means everything's being made new. And Jesus is the epicenter of what God is now doing on earth. If, if at, at times, long ago and in many ways, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son who is the enthroned king at the right hand of majesty on high and is the atoning priest who is exalted above the heavens. Everything's changed. Everything's changed. The law, the priesthood, the temple, the sacrifices, everything is changing now that Jesus is here. And all of this, everything we've known for all these years it, is, it was just a, it was a warm-up act to the main event now that Jesus has come. It was a shadow. It was an echo. It was a preview. And now that Jesus is here, everything fades into oblivion under the blazing presence of Jesus himself. There is new life. There is new hope. There is new sacrifice, new intercession. There is new access to God. There is new glory. There's new everything. Because of Jesus. And there's nobody else like him. Nobody else. Now why, does this, why is this priesthood now better for us? Why is this priesthood now better for us? Well, if you've lived long enough and your conscience still works, which is not a given, okay? 
By the way, if your conscience works, that's a huge mercy. It's a huge mercy. You will be filled with and carry with you shame, sin, and a sense of being soiled. Yes? And it eats away at you. In the the old way of things, you had to get on your boots and travel hundreds of miles and go make a sacrifice and get blood on your hands. And it covered you for 24 hours. And then you had to get back in line. And every time your conscience prickled, you had to get back in line, back in line, back in line. But in God's great mercy, he has sent us his son, Jesus, who died on the cross in our place and for our sake, who has borne all, all of our sin and shame. He is the substitute of an atoning life offered by a sanctified intermediary. He did it all himself. And he rose again to make us right with God, his life in exchange for ours forever, forever. And although you and I all know that we are far more sinful than we ever dared realize, in Jesus, we are far more loved than we ever dared hope. And Jesus plus nothing equals Everything. Not Jesus plus trying a little harder. Not Jesus plus loads of guilt. Not Jesus plus beating yourself up every day. Not Jesus plus apologizing for the rest of your life. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. It is finished. Finally, fully, forever, finished. And if you are in Jesus Christ today, if you have admitted you're a sinner, you believe that Jesus has done everything to make you right with God, if you've committed your life to Him, do you know what's true of you? You're forgiven. Your sin will never define you again. Not now, not ever. You are redeemed. The debt has been paid in full. You're accepted, welcomed, embraced. Come here. You are known. Your Father sees you and knows you and values you and prizes you. You are loved. You are chosen and cherished and delighted in. And you are close. You have access to God. You are near. You are intimate with him. You are home. You're home. You belong. 
You are included. You are welcomed. You're free. You are free. You are emancipated and liberated. The chains are gone. You are safe. You are secure in the refuge and harbor of his arms. You are found. In Jesus, it is calm and hope-filled, and it is okay. You are kept by the steadfast, strong love of God who will hold you all the way home. And it is forever. This is the never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking always and forever love of God. Verse 25, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Friends, there is far more mercy in Jesus than there is sin in us. There's far more mercy in Jesus than there is sin in us. Aren't you glad? Let's pray together. (sighs) Father, I am amazed at the degree to which you put up with us. We can make excuses for ourselves. But when we look around this world at how all of your kids behave as a whole, like we are such a mess. And the fact that in your mercy you would be forbearing, that you would cover us over centuries with the inadequacy of animals in preparation of the day that your son would come when he would be enough for us for all time to cover every single person to the uttermost. That we would be forgiven to the very bottom of who we are and that we would be loved to the skies. This is amazing love. This is mercy beyond reason. This is love from beyond the world and it was your first plan in your heart of hearts for Jesus is the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world before you ever said let there be light Jesus was as good as sacrificed his life for ours that you would plan this your own son's demise for the glory of his name and the good of your people to redeem us and call us from all of our mess into your presence. There's no love like this that we know. Nowhere else we can turn.
Jesus really is everything. And we can add nothing to the equation. So, Father, help us to rest. Help us to believe that it is finished. That we don't have to carry guilt. That you have borne our shame. And that if we confess our sins, that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Every ounce, every bit, every drop, even the stuff we don't even know about. You are amazing and gracious. And we pray this in the name of Jesus because he's the only reason that we can come to you. He is the reason we have access to your throne. He is, it is his blood on our behalf. It is his life in our place. It is his covering over us that matters. And it is his priesthood that ever intercedes and prays for us and lifts us up. He's our everything. And we pray this in his name.